Morning everyone. What a pleasure it is to be here with you again, to see your faces, and, uh, and I'm excited to share with you. I've been really enjoying this series, looking at different meals. The one downside is, as someone who doesn't often have breakfast, uh, it hurts to listen to these messages, and it hurts even more to speak them, because all I can think about is how hungry I am. So there's a little reminder for you, to remind yourself to think, are you hungry right now? Did you eat breakfast? What happened this morning? Um, just, I hope that, that makes your morning a little bit less pleasant, that feeling of hunger that you're now aware of that you wouldn't have thought about if I didn't say it. But food resonates with me. I love food. And it clearly resonated with Jesus as well. It's a part of culture and life. It's how we connect with each other. And it, it, it uh, goes across cultures and time. We can read these stories from long ago and they still uh, have meaning to us today because food remains the same. Our basic need for food continues. And so I'm excited to share with you this morning about this meal, because for many of us, after this service, we'll be having a meal. We'll be heading down, well, I think it's actually going to be up here. We'll be in here having a meal together, which will be wonderful, uh, because we'll be able to put into practice some of the things that we've been talking about over the, the weeks that have gone behind, and maybe we can think about them in the weeks ahead. And so as we dive into our passage today that, that James just read, I think it's a very exciting passage. And I think it's exciting because it's one of those, those few stories in the Gospels that is in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all felt that this story of this, this shared meal, meal out in the countryside was worth including in their writing. It was worth mentioning for some significant reason. More broadly, in the context of Luke chapter 9, we see that the disciples have just been sent out. It's actually the first time that they've been sent away from Jesus and they've gone and they've been teaching about him in the countryside and in villages and in towns around the area. And they left and they weren't allowed to. They were actually commanded not to take food with them or to take extra clothes. Uh, they, they were meant to take very little with them and to rely on the generosity of the people who they stayed with as they went. And they were sent with Jesus' authority so they would heal and they would cast out impure spirits. And so they went and they taught about him all around the countryside. It was a big deal. This is something that wouldn't necessarily happen often. You wouldn't often send out your disciples this early on in the peace. In fact, it's, it's quite interesting because the disciples are yet to fully grasp who Jesus is and yet they're sent to go and teach. And so this is the context under which we read at the very start of our passage that the disciples return to Jesus in verse 10. They've just been out on the road proclaiming the word uh, or the truth about who this Jesus fellow is, but they're still on their way to understanding that for themselves. And so Luke sets out right here to explain exactly who Jesus is. He wants to make it clear who this Jesus fellow is to the reader. And so the answer to the question of who Jesus is is found all throughout this chapter. But it culminates in a meal. It's centred around this meal. Jesus has become a pretty famous figure. He's starting to become renowned. He's uh, a bit of a local celebrity. So much so that, that the local ruler, Herod, uh, he's beginning to ask, who then is this that I hear such things about? 
in the verses just prior? The question is out there. And people want to know who is Jesus. And so on either side of our our meal today, the same three options are given. People are uh, beginning to speculate about who Jesus might be. And so they, they give a couple of options. The first option, John the Baptist, not a bad guess, unless you were there when John baptized Jesus and unless you actually listened to anything that John said about preparing the way for someone else, not himself. So it's clearly not John the Baptist, but some people think it is. Other people think it's Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Pretty significant prophet, not a bad guess either. Uh, Elijah didn't die, he went up to heaven in a whirlwind, that's in 2 Kings 2, so he could have come back. And in 2 Kings 4, Elijah's successor, Elisha, feeds a hundred men with 30 loaves of bread. So the parallel is there. But no, Jesus can't be Elijah either. And in fact, he can't be the third option, which is another prophet, because we know that Jesus was meant to be a greater prophet, greater than the ones who came before. In Deuteronomy 18.18, he is set up to be someone who is like Moses, but who speaks the very words of God. So who is this Jesus? If he's not John, and if he's not Elijah, and if he's not a prophet, who could he be? Well, I hope this morning as we look into this passage, as we ponder this meal, we might have a clear vision of who Jesus is. We might ask ourselves, who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to me? We can become complacent at times, get into the rhythm of reading old verses and old stories. I mean, this is one that you probably heard in Sunday school whenever you were there. And so we can stop looking to see him anew. So come with me. Let's look at this meal and ask, who is Jesus this morning? And so as we look at this meal, I think the first thing that we begin to learn about this meal and about this story is that Jesus is one who values and provides rest. I was talking with a friend recently, a good friend of mine, and he was telling me this story about some stuff that had been happening in his life. He was telling me that he'd he'd recently found out that he had a thing called sleep apnea. I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, it's a, a condition where as you sleep, your airway closes, and it means that all throughout the night, you stop breathing. And so your, your, your organs have to work harder because you're not getting oxygen. You don't really get good rest. And so he's describing this to me and he's telling me all of the symptoms and all the ways that has impacted his life and how glad he is to know that he had it. And as he was saying this, I was trying to be there for him, you know, trying to be sympathetic. But all I could think is, are you describing me? Are you you telling me about myself? And so I went out and I got myself tested, you know, got all the electrodes and stuff. Good fun. And I found out I too have sleep apnea. And so I've had this opportunity recently to, uh, to start to treat that. And so for the first time in what must be five years, I feel like I'm starting to actually sleep. Like I'm actually resting. Like sleep matters. Rest is important. And our meal in this story occurs just after the disciples have been out on the road teaching. They've been working hard. They've been doing it tough. 
Sometimes they might have gone without food or struggled to find shelter. They've been travelling from village to village, living entirely off the generosity of others, and I'm sure they received it, but it would have been difficult. And I'm sure their, their stories would have been incredible as, as well. I mean, these are, this is some of the first Christian mission work that we see in the New Testament. They're the first people who went out and taught about Jesus, other than Jesus himself and maybe John who came before. And so they've got these awesome stories and they're, they're telling Jesus about these, And this is Jesus' response. He takes them away and they withdraw to a quiet place. In fact, in Mark's version of this story, the emphasis is a little bit stronger. In Mark 6, Jesus says, Come with me to a quiet place and get some rest. Come and get some rest. You see, when Jesus invites us to rest, I think there's a few different answers we might be inclined to give. We might hear this call to rest from Jesus and think to ourselves, I can't afford to rest. I don't have time to rest. We lead busy lives. We have many responsibilities, people to care for who rely on us. Jobs, study, family. We've got houses to run, degrees to get. We've got many things to fill our lives with and the thought of rest at times can actually make us feel even more unrested. Like the idea of taking a step back is more stressful than the rest would help. And so instead we carry on, we push through. We say, I'll rest when things quieten down. I'll rest when there's less people who rely on me or when I can afford to let a few things fall through the cracks. I'll rest when I'm ready. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, come and rest right now. Come rest with me. Let's retreat to a quiet place. Let's rest. And so if the first trap that we might be enticed into believing is that, that busyness is best, that busyness means value, that busyness means holiness, that productivity is the pinnacle of life. Sometimes we can look at other, other Christians or other people around us and see how busy their lives are and actually crave that for ourselves because it looks attractive. But disciples have just returned from sharing the good news. They've been doing awesome work. I'm sure they saw God move powerfully. I mean, they were healing people and casting out demons. And they come back and Jesus doesn't turn to them and say, why are you here? If it was going well, why'd you come back to me? Keep on going. No, he says, good job. Now come and rest. In Mark 1, Jesus calls his disciples and people are following him, much like our story today. They love to follow Jesus. Uh, And Jesus, one night, retreats away to be by himself to pray. And in the morning, everyone's looking for him. They've been following him and he's just started to do this incredible ministry. And when the disciples finally find him, they're beside themselves. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? People want to hear from you. 
If you're a rabbi, surely that's what you want to do. But in the midst of that rest, Jesus has time to discern the way forward. He goes to a quiet place and prays. And afterwards, he doesn't go back to the work. He can see that there's something else to be done. And so they move on to a new area. To those of us who like to say, I can't afford to rest. This morning, Jesus invites us to rest anyway. To prioritise rest. To prioritise time with him. The work will always be there. So come and rest. I think another response we might have, and this is one that I personally probably like to use myself as an excuse is, I don't need rest because I'm built different. Because I can keep on going. Because I've still got more energy. I can keep on pushing. I was made like this so I can keep on going. You know, for five years I thought being extremely tired was normal and was actually the way that life was meant to be. I never asked if I was meant to live this way. It took someone else to show me that there was an alternative, that I was living in sleep deprivation and I didn't even know it. And the beauty of rest is that God designed it from the start. In Genesis, we have the account of God creating everything that is and will be. And while the climax of that creation is is the creation of humanity, the climax of that initial story comes at the end of creation when God rests. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. If our response when offered rest is to say, I can't afford to rest or I don't need to rest, know that God rested. And I doubt that God rested because he was exhausted or because he was completely out of energy, because he'd reached the end of his creative power. No, he rested because he wanted us to know that it was part of how we were made to live. Because it was part of how we were made to live with him. That rest was essential. That time with him was necessary. That we weren't made only to work, but to rest also. So if the first two options when faced with with this challenge is to say no, then of course the the third option would be to say yes. To recognise that God intended it from the start and to ask, how can I rest with you, God, this morning? If if God instituted rest, if Jesus modelled rest, if the disciples followed it, how much more should we as well? And and one of my challenges to you this morning is if rest is something that you find easy, if it's something that you have built perfectly into your life, then share it. I think we, we like to think of rest as something to be experienced only by ourselves. 
And yet Jesus brought the disciples with him to rest at times. That they did it together. That it was something that was enjoyed in company. And so if you have healthy spiritual rest in your life, don't just enjoy it on your own. Share it with one another. With those you sit with this morning. With those you live with. With those you eat with. Rest together. Encourage one another to spend time with our Lord. That's the communal rest that Jesus invites the disciples to. And and we'll see later, it doesn't go so well, but that's the, the desire is there to rest with our Lord. In fact, it's embedded in, in the way they do meals in general. I think when we eat meals, we would, at least in my household, we use the phrase, come sit up to dinner. It's very formal, very rigid. In the Bible, it is to recline at a meal. In fact, in their day, sometimes they wouldn't just recline, they would full-on lie down on each other at times, just leaning on one another, enjoying food in each other's company and resting. It was a break from their life. They would rest together because it is not success but surrender that we strive towards. And so this meal that we see this morning happens in the context of the pursuit of rest. Slow down. Seek rest. Well, as we progress further and we actually enter into the meal this morning, the the, the feeding together, we see that this meal causes people to seek reliance on God. Recently, I've had the pleasure of, of watching my nephew begin to grow up. My, uh, my brother and, and his wife have had their first kid, and so we're entering this new stage of life. It is glorious. Uh, and so little Tatum, Tatum's his name, if you don't know, um, he's a, a bit over a year old. He's done a whole bunch of that really early growth stuff. It's, it's phenomenal. He's the cutest kid you'll ever see. And, and, I, and I don't even say that from a biased position. Like, we've, we've sent it to people, and they've approved that it, yeah. It's, it's scientifically cutest kid on the earth. I don't make, I don't make the evidence. It's not, it's not me. Great kid. Love him to bits. But it's been really cool watching him learn to do things. You know, things that you don't even realize people need to learn to do. Like he, he had to learn to crawl. I thought that was just natural. But there's a long time where they can't even like roll over. And then he learns to crawl, but he like takes two little crawls. And then he's like, oh, I'm exhausted. So he's come a long way, now he flies around, crawling all over the place. He's trying to learn to walk, he's not very good at it. Uh, well, he, I think he kind of is, but if he doesn't have something to hold on to, he doesn't trust himself. But he's growing and he's getting better at doing things for himself. He's learnt not to touch the fire. Uh, he didn't learn that one by experience, thankfully, but just through us saying, don't touch, don't touch. And then he'll go, hot, hot. He's the cutest kid, he's so cute. <laughs> you guys know that, you know that, he's the best. Uh, but, he, but he's learnt all these things and he's become more and more like self-reliant. You can kind of trust him. If he's not going to touch the fire and he's figured out how to go down like a single step, then he can probably look after himself every now and then. He's learnt little bits of independence. Well, in our story, I'll come back to that, don't you worry. Jesus tries to retreat with his disciples and everybody comes and, and the crowds follow them and so they can't get away. They can't get any opportunity for rest. And so Jesus, kind of seeing what's happening, goes aside and begins to teach and heal and care for this crowd. 
and we have a little time skip because all of a sudden it's like late evening. It's getting on in the day and, uh, and the disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. You know, the disciples have correctly identified the problem, good on them for that, but they have totally missed the solution. Jesus, all these people need food. Send them away so they can get some. It's not the worst idea. I want to give the disciples a bit of credit. I think they get a a, a bad rap, but it's not the worst idea I've ever heard. I don't know if you've ever catered for a large party or a large gathering. It's a lot of work. We catered for like 80 people last night and it was the worst. No, anybody who was there, not that part. Love you guys. It was just a lot of work. There's a lot of clean up. It's not on the script. I don't know why I said it. So they've got like 5,000 people to cater for. Sending them away would make sense. Jesus turns to them and instead says, you give them something to eat. Well, that's a bigger problem. It made a lot of sense to send them away to get their own food. How do we provide for 5,000 men, so women and children accompanying? How do we provide for them? It would cost us a lot. We'd have to go to a whole bunch of villages to get the food. It's an insurmountable task, Jesus. What do you want us to do? The disciples have missed the point. It's not about what they need to provide. It's about where they need to go looking. Buying food for 5,000 people would be tough. But they're in the presence of Jesus. You see, even though my nephew Tatum has come a long way and he's learnt to do a lot of things for himself, it wasn't always like that. And I I have a a vivid memory of a moment from about a year ago when Tatum was still very young and so he would have to have everything done for him. And so there was this moment where Brennan was feeding Tatum and and so he'd be feeding him with a spoon as you do with the kids and he had some kind of jar, some food. And as he was feeding him, he would go to give it and Tatum had figured out that he could grab the spoon if he wanted to. And so he would reach up to try and grab the spoon, either to, I don't know, try and feed himself or just to play with it. And every time my brother would gently grab his arms and say, no, 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 I will feed you. And then he'd try again. And again, Tatum would try and grab the spoon, just wants to do it himself. And Brennan would gently put his arms down and say, no, 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 I will feed you. And this would happen three or four times with every spoonful. No, no, no. I will feed you. We love to flail our arms and try and take control for ourselves. We love to be in control. And God patiently says, no, no, no. I will feed you. The disciples miss it. And I'm sure we would too if we were in their situation. When Jesus asks them to feed the people before them, they aren't meant to look around to the towns and figure out logistically where it could come from. They're meant to look to Jesus and ask him. That's what Jesus desires, is for us to look to him first. We love to try and grab the spoon for ourselves. We love to be in control. 
But in this miracle and in this meal this morning, we are called again to submit to God, to rely on him. There are parts of our lives that we can be slow to give to God. We can prefer to have them in our own control, to do them our own way. And we might be inclined to think that it's the insurmountable tasks that we give to God. They're the things that are easy to give to God and the everyday things we just do ourselves. And I'm sure that's how it feels often in practice. And yet the disciples here have an insurmountable task and they still don't look to the one who is with them. What would it look like for us to turn to Jesus in all things, at all times? How might God subvert our expectations? How might he change the way we do things, the way we approach challenges or the way we approach good things as well? When we invite him into all of the aspects of our lives, how might he change the way we live? This is the exact idea Paul picks up on in Philippians 4 when he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This meal is a reminder to trust in God. And it doesn't just apply to the challenges, it applies to the victories as as well. It applies to the good things we're pursuing, but we're pursuing in our own strength. What relationship or career or hobby or, or family thing, what friendship or activity or ministry are we pursuing? And how can we invite Jesus to be the one who leads and who provides. Where are we looking for worldly answers when Jesus has a spiritual answer to provide? Well, finally this morning, we finally reach the crux of the passage, the actual meal. And so we see that Jesus provides a meal of satisfaction. The disciples have caught on. Jesus is doing something here. When he starts, says to them, go and sit down to the people, I think they've figured out what's happening here. And so all the people, they go and they gather into these groups of 50 to sit. And, and the words here, though it's, it's not literally there, you'll see that they are very similar to the idea of reclining. They come from the Old Testament um, as, a, as an idea of reclining and sitting together for a meal. And so the people, they sit and they anticipate what Jesus will do. And so rest and reliance come together as Jesus provides this food. He blesses the food and everyone eats until they're satisfied. In Jesus is the fulfilment of satisfaction of all of God's providential acts to satisfy We see the fulfilment of of, of everything that God has been doing up until now and all of that satisfaction is found in the person of Christ. From providing a lamb for Abraham when he thought he would have to sacrifice his son to providing food for Israel when they're in the wilderness day by day so they rely on God. Providing a family for for Ruth and, uh, and Naomi 
providing a king for Israel in David, providing prophet after prophet, saving Israel from the hands of their enemies time after time, it all comes to a head in Jesus as he tells the people to sit and wait. As Jesus provides for them their physical food, we read that everyone ate and was satisfied. They were satisfied and there was more left over. Twelve baskets to be gathered. Jesus provides and he provides in abundance. Our God is a God who provides. We see this idea all throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, I think one one beautiful display of it is in Isaiah 55. Uh, God is talking to the people about their return to the land, that they'll come back and reclaim their land because at the moment they've been exiled. And so we read this in Isaiah 55 verses 1 to 2. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. What God provides satisfies and what he provides is free. In his son is a free satisfaction a life given freely for ours. And so it's no wonder that immediately after this miracle, uh, Peter recognises Jesus as the Messiah. This moment of of providing for the people leads Peter then to realise that Jesus is going to provide in a greater way. That Jesus will provide his own body, not for physical food, but to spiritually provide his people. The meal becomes a representation of the greater satisfaction that Jesus offers. The living water that means we will no longer thirst. The meal that satisfies both God's wrath and our needs. And so as we come together after this service, and hopefully you're all staying for a meal, as we come and we eat, Know that that hunger that I pointed out at the start, that hunger that you may have, as that is satisfied, it represents Jesus' satisfaction on a far greater level. That Jesus satisfies all our needs. That that what wrong we've done is satisfied in him and in the cross. That what rest we need is found in him as we come before him. That what we lack, he provides as we rely on him. So bring your burdens and your worries. Bring your tiredness or your challenges, your conflicts, your life. Bring it to him and trust that he will provide, he will refresh, he will satisfy. That's the Jesus that we see in our passage this morning. A Messiah who offers himself freely. 
who we see through a shared meal. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you satisfy. Thank you that though we bring many things with us, we carry many anxieties or fears, we carry tiredness and stress. Lord, we carry much of the world, but you have overcome it. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would satisfy our every need, that you would continue to love and forgive us, that you would continue to provide us with rest. And so, Lord, call us back into your presence. Call us back to you so that we may know your deep and your powerful rest this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.